Hello and welcome to the Violet Podcast. This week we'll be responding to a wealth of questions from listeners that we've had sent in about the current situation in Cuba. Apologies if you sent questions and we don't manage to get round to them in the episode. We've done our best to paraphrase or lump them together and get through as many as we can. But please do follow this up if you don't feel like we've answered it sufficiently. Hopefully this is proof that we do read our emails and we do answer questions and they do influence what we talk about in the podcast. So if there are any other topics that you'd want us to talk about, if there's anything else in particular you want to discuss or any specific questions you want to ask us, please do get in touch through Twitter to our handle at underscore the violet underscore to our email address, which is contact.theviolet at gmail.com or via the contact us form on our website, which is www.theviolet.net. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. So the current wave of of protests in Cuba has been escalating for some time. Um, And as with everything really in in politics and society and, and the social sciences this is not a monocausal thing. Uh, The protests have come about for a variety of reasons and different people are protesting for different reasons and against different things. Some people are protesting against the very strict COVID measures that the Cuban government has implemented to try and stop the spread of COVID, uh, much as people in the the UK and the US uh, protest against lockdown and face mask restrictions and so on. Um, Other people are protesting because of food and medical shortages, which themselves have come about for a variety of reasons. Um, And other people are demanding liberalization and democratization of the Cuban political system. Uh, And within that, there there is, of course, a subset of people uh, who would advocate not just for reform, but for regime change. And so in response to a lot of the the questions that we got from our Violet listeners about why these protests are taking place, um, what are people unhappy about, what do they want, uh, the answer is, as, as with everything in politics, not simple, it's complex. Different people want different things. In a political protest movement, people have different experiences, people have different rationales, people have different beliefs because they come from different backgrounds and they have different concerns uh, and different lived experiences. And this is this is the latest manifestation of something that we've said a few times before, and it's probably worth kind of repeating as its own mantra. Um, maybe we should write a short book on sort of simple rules to live by to be a good uh, social sciences commentator, is to realize that in any, in any group of people, there is a huge amount of disagreement and a huge number of, of different opinions. There are as many different opinions and beliefs as there are people. Uh, and we've discussed this before in the context of established religions which are thousands of years old and in terms of established uh, cultures and nationalities which are hundreds or thousands of years old and how you know it means a different thing to every individual to be christian or to be british or whatever clearly the same rule applies to a bunch of people protesting uh, in a particular country which is not an established organization they haven't all got together and sat down and decided uh, exactly what they believe and agreed that they believe the same thing clearly they the answer to you know what do these protesters want why are they protesting what are they demanding is well ask five different protesters and you'll get five different answers that's just the way the protests work one thing i would say though in terms of 
who protesters are and what they want and why they're protesting is that looking at sort of uh, banal economic triggers for a protest is always much easier than looking for sort of ideological consistency across protests. And what I mean by that is that the average person is a pretty rubbish social scientist. Uh, in fact, I will I will broaden that. The average social scientist is a pretty rubbish social scientist too. So <laughs> most people don't understand the way the economy works. Nobody fully understands the way econ- global economies and politics work. Um, but people are keenly aware of their own personal circumstances and their living standards in their own lives. So when something happens like the uh, shortages of food and medicine that have been happening in Cuba recently, which are definitely one of uh, the sparks of the protest for different people, it's quite easy to to put our finger on that and say, well, that's happening, that's clearly impacting on people's living standards, that's why they're protesting. But then in terms of what policies or what changes to the government they would like to see to prevent that from happening in the future, well, every different individual protester based on their education and their understanding and their particular political ideology will come to different conclusions about that. So it's fairly easy to say uh, bad handling of the the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, shortages of food and medicine are what's starting this protest. Uh, what would the protesters like to see? Well, they'd like to see a country that's free of COVID-19 and has ample food and medicine available for everyone. How do they want to bring that about? What political changes are they actually asking for so that that happens? That's the complicated question that we just can't come to an answer to. And if you really wanted to come to an answer, you would have to sit down every single last protester um, and ask them. So in response to another listener's question, which is, are the protests uh, anti-communists or are they anti-embargo, by which I, I understand uh, anti-communists being against the Cuban government and anti-embargo being against US government policy. They do seem to be primarily anti-communist or anti-Cuban government in that regard, given the Cuban government's response to the protests. Um, rather than encouraging them as a show of anti-American sentiment, they have quite heavily cracked down on them. Uh, several hundred people have been arrested. Uh, quite a lot of those people are still missing. Um, and the the repression of the protests has been quite swift. Um, not many people have died, fortunately, so it seems uh, like more of a muted response in that regard. Um, but there has also been widespread censorship of of the protests uh, and of um, protesters' demands on traditional and social media. So they do seem to be quite squarely leveled against the Cuban government. But again, within that, there are different demands and there are different layers and different protesters and groups who want different things. Uh, Some people are simply demanding that the government accept humanitarian aid from abroad uh, and especially from the US. And it's been long stated Cuban government policy not to accept humanitarian aid from the US uh, because they believe it would be a backdoor for US influence into the country. Um, As I said previously, some people, not really in Cuba, uh, but mostly Cuban uh, diaspora populations in places like Florida are demanding military intervention, although that seems uh, a very small minority and not really like the demands of the protesters in Cuba itself. Um, Some people are demanding a total end to the one-party authoritarian system of communist rule in Cuba. Others are quite happy for the one-party system to continue, but uh, are demanding the resignation of the president, specifically uh, Miguel Diaz-Canel, 
um, and want him to step down, but aren't fundamentally against the, the Cuban government or the Cuban system as a whole. I think it's worth adding to that as well, that part of the Cuban government's uh, repression strategy at the best of times, but especially in this particular case with the protests, is to uh, switch off the internet, uh, prevent uh, people from from conglomerating and from discussing and uh, generally locking up anyone who's caught having a political discussion and making it extremely difficult for protesters to organize and establish some sort of organization and some sort of uh, unified or coherent demand. Um, the Cuban government's done a good job of that so far in that there isn't a sort of single organization representing the protesters uh, with a clear objective. Uh, and so the lack of that in this particular case has fueled a lot of sort of rumor and conspiracy and speculation about uh, what these protests are about and what causes them. And I, I do think that in to some degree, the degree of speculation and people coming to wildly different conclusions is due to the fact that the protesters have not been able to uh, organize themselves and um, communicate a particular sort of agenda. And in my view, one of the reasons that people or some people or some listeners might find it hard to grasp that people are protesting against the the Cuban government uh, or the Cuban political system is because they have a view of of Cuba as some kind of uh, like untouched communist paradise, um, and it is true objectively that Cuba does better than expected on certain measures, uh, principally healthcare, um, and Cuba has as its main soft power global strategy for the past few decades uh, exported healthcare workers uh, and sent them abroad to uh, you know to help tackle various crises around the world. Most recently. Uh, sending Cuban doctors abroad to deal with COVID. So Cuba does do well on certain metrics. That is objectively true. That doesn't mean that the system as a whole is endorsed by all Cubans and that everyone agrees with it and that all parts of it run smoothly. Uh, as we'll discuss in more depth later, uh, food shortages and shortages of various goods have been quite common uh, in, in Cuba over the past few decades, partially due to the US embargo, partially due to Cuban government policy. Uh, and this is something that in the past has caused discontent. Um, just because certain parts of the uh, the Cuban system are, are popular um, and are statistically well run, it doesn't mean that the system or the political establishment as a whole is. But the most important point here is that healthcare is an exception. And whilst uh, in terms of life expectancy, Cubans uh, do particularly well, uh, not much better than the rest of the rich world, in fact worse than the majority of the rich world, but much better than you expect for their income level. The income level in Cuba is still low, uh, and income statistics are still a very good statistic to look at standard of living, because they show you how many goods and services altogether each individual person um, has access to. Uh, and at the moment, on current income statistics, the average Cuban is about five times poorer than the average Briton. Um, average incomes in the UK are about $38,000 in, in international dollars. Uh, average incomes in Cuba are about 8000 So without having to go into the messy world of ideology and politics and looking at what particular people believe um, about political systems and how they should work and uh, what political system people would like to live under, we can look at the economic side of things and see that living standards in Cuba are poor by global standards. And this, given 
that uh, a lack of food and medicine in the country is one of the particular triggers of this round of protests, it's clearly important to Cubans that their standard of living is not as high as they would like it to be. Why it's not as high as they'd like it to be, and why Cubans believe it's not as high as they'd like it to be, is another question. And that leads really neatly into one of our listeners' questions, uh, which is, why are there medicine and food shortages? Why are living standards so low? Why are there so many economic problems? Is it because of the US embargo or is it because of the Cuban government? Uh, before we go into answering this, I think it's first useful to to explain what the embargo is uh, because it's often quite poorly understood. What the US embargo on Cuba uh, means is that Cuban companies cannot buy or sell goods uh, to US companies and vice versa, uh, US companies cannot buy or, or sell goods from, from Cuba. Um, it's not a blockade because when we speak of economic blockades, that means a country is cutting off another territory or polity from trade with the rest of the world also, uh, and is by force preventing it from trading with the rest of the world. That's not the case with Cuba. Uh, the US government does not forcibly prevent Cuba from trading with any other country or vice versa. Uh, it just restricts economic relations between the US and Cuba. It's worth also pointing out that uh, medicine and food are exempt uh, from, from this embargo. Uh, I think that's been the case since 2001. Um, and so there is indeed some trade between the US and Cuba, uh, but only in the area of medicine and food. Uh, I do also think that the vast bulk, over 90% of US uh, exports to Cuba are agricultural. Uh, so the bulk of it is food rather than medicine. Uh, as of 2020, or in 2020, uh, the US uh, traded about $177 million worth of goods to Cuba, uh, and Cuba exported about $15 million worth of goods to the US. Uh, so there is still trade uh, with the US and Cuba, only in the area of medicine and food, and Cuba is free to trade with any other country in the world as it wishes. Right. So it's very important to realize the difference between an embargo and a blockade, and to realize that what the American government do is doing in Cuba is an embargo. Um, but the other problem that's actually a problem with the question of whether poor living standards in Cuba are caused by the, the US government's actions, the embargo and whatever else, or by the Cuban government's actions, um, is a classic example of something we come across all the time in politics and in history and economics, which is the single cause fallacy. The idea uh, that a lot of people intuitively have, which when you spell it out, is obviously really silly, that any complicated social science, economic, political phenomenon, uh, such as the living standards of everybody in Cuba, that's you know, um, 11 million people's different uh, experiences, that's in its own an extraordinarily complicated phenomenon. The causes of that, of what those living standards are and the specifics of them, are clearly myriad and complex before we even go into any technicalities or, or economics. Um, so the short answer to the question, are Cubans living standards due to the embargo or due to the Cuban government or due to various other things, um, is clearly it's due to lots of things. There are all sorts of uh, factors that affect how rich a particular country is. There are all sorts of factors that affect um, what people in a country aren't and aren't able to do. And the short answer is both. But we can't 
equally commit the opposite fallacy and say, well, there are multiple different causes of uh, Cubans' poor living standards, therefore everyone is equally culpable. Because just because multiple things are affecting something, just because there are multiple causes of an event, doesn't mean all those causes are of uh, equal weight, equal importance, and equal effect. So, yes, the embargo does have some effect, but we also need to look at the Cuban government, the way the Cuban government uh, runs and the way the Cuban government operates the economy and think about the extent to which that is culpable for Cubans' poor living standards as well. In the case of the Cuban economy, which is a centrally planned economy, uh, private business is, is effectively outlawed uh, in, in nearly every aspect of, of the economy. Um, there is a small and, and growing tourist sector, um, but that is still pretty state-controlled. Uh, private enterprise is still fairly limited in that sense. Um, fundamentally is a centrally planned socialist economy. And in centrally planned economies, because governments take longer to, to respond to demand and supply than you know the, the market mechanism, shortages of basic goods and services are fairly common. And that's been the case in any centrally planned economy ever uh, in history. Uh, even, for example, at the height of the Soviet Union's power, uh, shortages of basic goods and services were very common as they were in the in the Eastern Bloc. So this is not something that just exists in a small country which has been, you know, uh, as some people put it, cut off from the rest of the world by nefarious US policy. It is simply a feature of centrally planned economies. Uh, shortages are very common. Right. And um, exactly why centrally planned uh, economies lead to shortages um, is whole uh, economics degrees worth of stuff and actually would make a great future podcast topic i'm sure we'll get one of those in in future um but the the simple sort of way to think about this is is just to realize how um complex the needs and wants of an entire nation of people is so as i said before there are 11 million people in cuba um they all need various different things to live their lives various different goods and services they all want different goods and services uh, they've all got different preferences about what they like and what they don't like and uh, how they live their life and what they require to live their life and what they'd like to be able to live a better life uh, and those things change from time to time the, the exact goods and services that any individual wants um, changes all the time right you, you want different things in the morning to what you want in the evening let alone next month or next year or in 10 years time so an economy has to be an incredibly dynamic thing. An economy has to be able to uh, adjust to provide the goods and services that people need at any given time. And I'm not, I'm aware that in uh, criticizing the Cuban government, I'm going to get painted by a lot of listeners. A lot of listeners are going to assume that I'm a rabid free trader and believe that any sort of regulation or restriction on gov on uh, <laughs> on businesses is, is woefully unfair and, and bad. And that's obviously, or I hope obviously, not true. But if that entire economic system and deciding how much of what to produce and at what price to sell it uh, and who to give it to is given to one particular group, one particular organization, such as the Cuban government, but any government, it is simply far too complex a um, a job, far too complex a uh, problem to have a single solution that a single person or, or group can solve. Uh, and there are other problems with uh, a sort of socialist approach to the 
uh, economy in which everything is centrally planned, which are more technical uh, and some a bit more philosophical. But the simple way to think about it is just to realize how complex the running of an economy is and to realize that trying to plan it all and trying to make it work and trying to constantly update it to make sense um, is just too difficult and can't be done. And given that medicine and food are already exempt uh, from the embargo uh, and have been since 2001, the embargo cannot really be an explanatory factor for shortages of medicine and food in Cuba uh, because the US is already selling that stuff to Cuba. Uh, The embargo may well be an explanation for poor living standards or a partial explanation for poor living standards because it makes certain goods and services inaccessible to Cubans from their wealthiest nearby neighbour, but it cannot explain the shortages of medicine and food themselves. So we've discussed the easier side of um, life in Cuba and why people in Cuba might be protesting by looking at living standards and the economics of of why they might be dissatisfied with the government, why they might be dissatisfied with their lives uh, and willing to protest. The much more difficult side that we now need to turn to is the political side of the um, rights and freedoms that are available to Cubans and the rights and freedoms that Cubans would like to have available to them uh, and the extent to which that is playing a part in the protest. Now, one of the reasons that this is much harder to uh, to see and to get to grips with is because when it comes to living standards, we can look at a few relatively objective, and I realize there's going to be one or two lefties screaming that GDP is a lie uh, down the headphones, but we'll come back to that. Um, it's, it's, you can look at relatively objective statistics for living standards uh, in a country for how large people's incomes are. It's much harder to look at statistics or to have an objective statistic of how, um, how free a country is, uh, how many rights and uh, privileges people within that country have, and the extent to which the government is repressive. And that has led to a lot of people, uh, a lot of listeners who've sent in questions, asking us whether we have any evidence or whether we know that the Cuban government is actually any more... Um, repressive or restrictive than any other government. To briefly outline the the political structure of the the Cuban state, it is politically a one-party authoritarian state. There is a National Assembly, which is elected, uh, but the candidacies for that are highly restricted. Uh, It is not the case that just anyone can run on any platform putting forward whatever policies uh, they, they want to propose. So it is restricted in that sense, though there are elections, it is not democratic, just as in North Korea there are elections, but they are not democratic. Um, The National Assembly, in any case, only meets uh, a few days a year anyway, um, and mostly exists just to sign off executive policy. Uh, And all lawmaking, law designing, executive organs are functionally controlled by the Communist Party of Cuba. Uh, which is described as a vanguard Marxist-Leninist organization designed to safeguard uh, the revolution and and preserve it and keep it pure. Uh, And therefore, it's that body which really designs policy and the National Assembly pretty much exists just to sign it off. Uh, Some listeners did point out correctly that there was recently a a referendum in Cuba uh, with very high turnout in which about 90% uh, of Cuban citizens Uh, approved changes to the constitution. Um, To my knowledge, that referendum was reasonably free, and so 
if we take a very literal uh, meaning of the word democratic as just people vote, then yes, uh, Cuba is democratic. Um, some people would argue, or a lot of people would argue, including the Cuban government, that that referendum showed that Cubans endorsed the current uh, Cuban political system. Uh, and that, I believe, is untrue. Uh, the constitution which was endorsed by the referendum uh, was generally pro-liberalization, pro-democratization. Uh, it increased uh, civil liberties in some areas, uh, notably LGBT rights. Um, but the fact that Cubans overwhelmingly voted for that constitution does not necessarily mean they believe that is now an acceptable system or a perfect system of government. It shows that they believed that more liberal, more democratic uh, constitution with a greater focus on rights was preferable to the previous system. Uh, but it does not mean that Cubans now approve of the current system. And given the current protests, uh, there is obviously a large segment of the population which doesn't. And really, it's only possible to determine what Cubans want uh, with free elections, with a free press, where views are not restricted and people can say what they want and people can put forward the views that they want. That is the only way to determine what Cubans really want. And that is really the only meaningful form of democracy where people can put forward alternatives which are not restricted and vote for them freely without the threat of political repression. And hopefully listeners have listened to at least our democracy episode uh, and will have some idea of what we're talking about there. But I do think we should still um, try to elucidate as many of these words that we use that get thrown around in discussion of social science, especially by journalists, uh, but which aren't necessarily explained as well as they could be. And uh, one of those that we might want to dig into is one-party state, which is often thrown around as an insult for various less democratic countries. Um, and I think a few of our listeners, especially given the demographic of our listeners, um, will think of the UK as being akin to a one-party state because uh, the Prime Minister has been a Conservative since 2010. And for many of our listeners who are depressingly young, um, that covers the entirety of their sort of political lives, being old enough to, to think about politics and understand politics and know what's going on. So the difference really needs to be pointed out that... Um, Cubans do not have freedom of assembly. Cubans are not allowed to get together and discuss politics or discuss what they would like in their politics. Uh, there exist no other parties in Cuba. A one-party state is not about one party uh, consistently dominating elections or consistently winning elections. It's about one party existing. The difference between a period of domination by one party, as we have in the UK, and a true one-party state is that the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats, the Greens, SNP, UKIP are all um, free to organise, free to campaign, free to enter in elections as much as they wish. Um, the only difference is they keep losing to the Conservatives. The Conservatives keep doing a better job of convincing Britons that uh, they are the best party for the job. And so if you have uh, a problem with the Conservative Party uh, being the ruling party in Britain, you are free to do something about it. You are free to vote for another party, join another party, donate to another party, whatever you want. In Cuba, that does not exist. There are no other parties. If you are dissatisfied with what the government is doing, you have no outlet. You have no other party to vote for. You have no other parties campaign for or donate to. Um, and so 
as we said at the top of the bill, it's extremely difficult to know why people are protesting. Uh, we can't just look at them and go inside their heads and realizing why. But one uh, possible cause among many that we might moot here is that protest is the only form of uh, dissent available to a lot of Cubans because they can't vote for another party. There are no po other political alternatives. Uh, and so that makes it more likely that these protests are a show of dissatisfaction with the government. That said, we can't tell the extent to which they are dissatisfied with the government and whether a Cuban who is protesting because they're annoyed by current governance is annoyed because the government's not doing a very good job of, of buying enough medicines in from other countries and they want them to just buy more medicine, whether they dislike specific members of the government or would like specific members of that government changed, or whether they have a problem with the whole fundamental system uh, and would like to see that changed and to see other um, political alternatives introduced. Related to political repression or a lack of political choice in Cuba, uh, another one of our listeners' questions seems relevant here. Uh, which is, is the Cuban government really any more restrictive than the US? Uh, many of the critiques leveled against the Cuban government, such as uh, police brutality and a failure to deal with poverty, uh, are also problems in the USA. Um, there are multiple parts to our, to our response here. Uh, the first is that simply whataboutism is, is not helpful. And it is entirely possible to critique the Cuban government and critique the US government at the same time and it is not a competition and you can believe that both governments are doing certain things perhaps not the same things not particularly well or actively badly um we we have previously in this in this episode criticized the cuban government's tendency to over centralize everything uh, thereby causing shortages uh, and, and poor management of the economy but equally one could criticize uh, the failure of the u.s government to create a sufficient welfare net or to really manage anything uh, to the necessary degree to create a functioning uh, fair market. So that's the first answer, that whataboutism is not helpful, and that, yes, there are things to criticize about the US, that doesn't mean we can't criticize Cuba. Those are two separate issues. The second is that, even bearing that in mind, one does need to have a sense of, of proportion. And yes, again, there are many things to criticize about the US government, uh, especially in terms of police brutality, and we have mentioned this uh, before in previous episodes. Um, but statistically speaking, the US government is much, much less violent, at least within the US uh, or domestically, than the vast majority of developing or middle-income countries' governments. But it does come under more scrutiny because there is a freer press and you can freely criticise the US government and freely report uh, about its abuses of power. The same is not true of, of Cuba. Because of the extreme repression uh, of a free press, it is not possible to document and criticize the Cuban government's abuses of authority to the same degree. And therefore, equating the two is unhelpful. Again, domestically speaking, the US government is statistically less violent than the Cuban government, although neither excuses the other, and it's not a competition, and it's not a mutually exclusive critique um, that you have to pick between the US or Cuba. The right to criticize government is the most, or one of the most important ingredients of democracy. And we can see that even in recent years in the US with a very polarized, uh, divided electorate um, and you know the, the horrific violence at the Capitol, 
uh, on the 6th of January uh, when Trump incited mobs to try to overturn the, the election. Uh, throughout all of that, there was a consistent ability to criticise the government uh, and there has been a consistent ability to criticise both Republican and Democratic governments, uh, even in the current US political climate. Without that ability to criticise the government, it's really not possible to say what people want or um, what they're aiming for or what their opinions are. If you repress opinions in that sense, it's not possible to have a true democracy. And therefore, whilst we can definitely point to repressive or uh, illiberal aspects of the US government or things that we would definitely advocate changing, that does not mean that the Cuban government is not repressive or restrictive. And to, to carry on on this tangent away from Cuba a little bit, um, I do think that this lack of perspective for a lot of people is, is very dangerous. Um, it's why people need to be or generally need to be better educated in statistics about the world and, and the way in which the rest of the world works, uh, because I do think it is, to some extent, uh, damaging towards people's views of uh, development and what we need to do about developing and what uh, how developing countries need to be be helped and, and uh, foreign policy and improving living standards around the world, because I think there is more of a tendency nowadays to say, oh, well, you know, why should we care about uh, poverty and violence and and hunger in Ethiopia, all of those things happen in Britain, um, with no sense of proportion uh, and no sense of the difference between um, how uh, problems do exist in rich countries such as the UK and such as the USA, but those those problems and more to a much greater extent exist in a lot of other parts of the world and i think a lack of realization of how privileged people who live in this country are um goes a long way towards uh creating callous attitudes towards development callous attitudes towards poverty alleviation and results in things like uh the uk government's decision recently to cut its um overseas aid spending by 0.2 percent of gdp um, and to, to follow on from that and to, to add into that, when we look at political oppression, the same thing is true. Um, and I would advise listeners as a sort of test of this to go on Twitter, pick a member of the cabinet, pick someone who's high up in government uh, and tweet that they're an idiot and that you hate them and that anyone who votes for them is, is stupid. Um, and as bad as that is as social science commentary if you can do that and nothing in particular happens um you are therefore living in a really rather privileged really rather free part of the world because a huge number of people worldwide can't do that to sum up the general thrust of our opinion uh, on this first set of questions what is the reason for the deteriorating situation and the process in cuba uh, it is not a monocausal explanation. It is neither just the Cuban government and neither just uh, the uh, the US embargo on Cuba. Uh, and the US embargo on Cuba has definitely had damaging effects on Cuba, although, as we've said previously, not necessarily in the areas of food and medicine. Uh, blanket embargoes in any situation do quite a lot of damage to civilian populations. And indeed, that is the mechanism by which they're supposed to work. They're supposed to cause shortages and a decline in living standards and thereby cause people to be dissatisfied with the ruling regime and demand policy or regime change. That is how embargoes work. 
And blanket embargoes are often not particularly effective uh, in forcing policy changes from governments. Uh, for that reason, uh, we at the Violet are, are against the embargo, and we do think that the US embargo on Cuba should be lifted, uh, even though it is not solely responsible for food and medical shortages, or it's not really responsible for food and medical shortages. It is responsible partially for a decline in living standards, uh, and therefore it should be lifted. At the same time, it is not the only thing responsible uh, for Cuba's perilous uh, economic situation uh, a lot of that is down to cuban government policy um, and cuban government policy if conducted differently even given the embargo uh, could lead to a more successful economy a more thriving economy uh, one in which living standards are higher and people are less uh, you know less dissatisfied and less prone uh, to protest and indeed cuba has faced a similar situation in the past in the early 1990s uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, Cuba lost one of its main international trading partners uh, as the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc collapsed uh, and therefore did have to undertake a program of uh, semi-market uh, liberalization uh, and some democratic concessions in order uh, to, to preserve the economic situation in the country. Uh, and in the background of all of that was the same U.S. economic embargo, yet the economy in Cuba did improve in that period as a response to that crisis. So whilst the embargo has had damaging effects on Cuba and we believe it should be lifted, the bulk of the responsibility uh, for Cuba's economic situation uh, and the widespread dissatisfaction which is now manifesting in protests lies with the Cuban government. Fundamentally, the situation in Cuba is not uh, particularly complicated. It is a um, a population which is extremely badly ruled, um, rebelling or protesting against that misrule. And what I think is most interesting about the Cuban situation is the outsized uh, importance which is attached to Cuba by a lot of uh, political commentators. And a large part of that reasoning, I think, is that um, many people's uh, experience of politics who grew up, uh, the, the politics that they grew up learning about, the foreign policy that they grew up learning about and around them was during the Cold War. And during the Cold War, for various reasons, Cuba was a state of particular significance. The Cold War is over and that is no longer true. Cuba is a really relatively uh, small and unimportant country in global politics nowadays. Um, but that that importance is still attached to it, and that Cold War way of thinking is still used by a lot of people who think about Cuba. And one of the things that happens when people put their Cold War glasses on to um, analyse a situation is a unhealthy mistrust of informational sources and a sort of constant paranoia that any information about Cuba is... Uh, is conspiracy or is propaganda um, in a way that isn't attached to information about living standards and news in other parts of the world. With regards to the Cuban situation specifically, it must be pointed out that, again, with the end of the Cold War, Cuba is not particularly strategically important. Uh, Cuba does not uh, have any particularly rare or strategically important exports. Um and therefore, for the US, there is really little incentive to, to lie about this. Uh, Cuba is not important in the way it was during the Cold War. 
and i would say at this point some of our listeners have have uh, have argued or have questioned whether this is all just being manufactured by the us uh, as a way to garner support for military intervention there there is little to to no chance of intervention in cuba um because there is little to no strategic benefit to the us intervening in cuba would be far more uh, economically costly to the us than any benefit it would bring um added to that there have been in the past presidents who have been much more hostile to cuba uh, at a time when cuba has been in a much more vulnerable position uh, for example when there were protests in cuba in 1994 after the special period um cuba was probably at its most vulnerable at that point and there was no question of a us intervention uh, or or a military intervention it's absolutely not worth it uh, for the us to militarily intervene in cuba um the us definitely i would say has has an interest uh, in converting cuba into a, a liberal democracy um that is the stated aim of the embargo but it is almost inconceivable that they would try to achieve that by military force uh, also given the number of people that are out on the streets protesting it is inconceivable just as with the hong kong protests or uh on the other side of it just like the black lives matter protests that they are being paid by some nefarious outside agent you simply cannot get that number of people on the streets protesting especially in an authoritarian country where the penalties are so severe for protesting simply because they are being paid to do so uh these are legitimate grievances um and with any grievance against a government whether it's a grievance against a left wing government or a right wing government um we have to view those as legitimate grievances and not simply brush them under the carpet uh, because of our ideological framing of the issue believing that one side must be good and the other side must be uh, must be evil as as a black and white issue right there is a highly unhelpful strain of argument that's common when we're talking about um cuba in particular because as we've said of the cold war history but with uh, american foreign policy in general this tends to be the case that there is there are a large number of people who are very critical of the us government who are very critical of of um generally sort of what's seen as outsized european or western influence um who see any sort of argument to the country as american propaganda that there is this unfalsifiable idea that global institutions uh, and any sort of statistics or facts or news about uh, America or American interests is being controlled by the American government or is in some way um American propaganda and that believing the sort of orthodoxy in the news is to simply be um subjugated to american propaganda and to believe it and this as i said is very is is unfalsifiable it's very difficult to to get round any attempt to present neutral impartial information to people who think in this way uh is very difficult because it's always easy to say that there is some sort of uh shadowy powerful force behind the media that is influencing this information um but we'll do our best <laughs> we'll do our best to try and convince you that our criticisms of the Cuban government and our sort of tentative support for Cuban protesters protesting for better living standards isn't coming from a place of 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 blind ideological allegiance to uh, the United States um hopefully our criticism of the embargo has shown you that that is not um true that is not the way we think um 
but that we are finding this information in uh, neutral, impartial, believable third-party sources. And it is often the case that people, when they're defending the, uh, the Cuban regime, conflate all Western sources of information as Western propaganda against Cuba, uh, failing to realize that Western sources of information are not all the US government, are not all the CIA, um, are not all like some shady foreign service. Again, it's only the US that has imposed an embargo in, on, on Cuba. The EU trades pretty freely with Cuba, um, as do other quote, Western-aligned countries like Japan, South Korea, uh, and so on. It's not the case that everyone in the Western world or the developed world is equally hostile to Cuba. Uh, and equally, it's not the case that everyone who publishes statistics is a government-based entity with a particular agenda. Uh, there are loads of very credible sources like the World Bank, Our World in Data, The Economist, the IMF, Freedom House, and these are not American propaganda this is statistical information. Of course, if you start from the starting point that the Cuban government is right and anything which contradicts that is Western propaganda, then you will not be convinced by this. You, you will believe that um, we're, we're agents of the CIA or um, they're, they're funding the violence. As, as much as I wish that that were true, we'd have so much more money. Um, but no, these, these are genuine, uh, you know, genuine objective statistics. Uh, they they can be used by you to draw your own conclusions uh, on Cuba's economic situation, its political situation, and so on. Um, and if I may for a second draw, draw an analogy, uh, this is effectively, or, or saying that anything which is critical of Cuba must be American propaganda, is effectively the flip side of the, the kind of Trumpist argument that anyone protest, protesting against Trump is uh, Antifa, or secretly funded by George Soros and is anti-American and designed to bring down Western civilization. Uh, in any situation, if your conclusion proceeds or comes before the information and you select what information is valid or not based on whether it supports the conclusion, then you aren't thinking critically. And we're not here saying that the US government should be trusted uh, in, you know, in all circumstances. Um, absolutely, that's that's not the case. But it may happen that the US government is critical of Cuba and is advocating not particularly good solutions, uh, but are being critical of a genuine problem. And this links very nicely with what we were saying at the top of the podcast, that we can't think of groups as homogenous, that there is an incredible amount of, of disagreement within groups, um, that just as we can't say that you know Muslims believe X, Jews believe X, Cubans believe X, um, the idea that sort of Western civilization believes X uh, is is um, complete nonsense. There is an extraordinary within what might be classed as Western civilization in inverted commas. There is an extraordinary number of people and organizations and beliefs and ideologies. And I think the most uh, damning criticism of um, outright rejection of anything that's sort of uh, orthodox news in the West. Um, is that the ability of people to say that and the ability of people to criticize and be skeptical and reject the information that is given to them and to freely do so without any sort of intervention from the government is proof of the freedom of speech and freedom of thought and freedom of assembly and um, 
general level of liberty available to people in these countries which aren't available to people in for example cuba and which set the standard for um liberal government that allows people a serious level of freedom and a serious level of quality of life and that um wanting those freedoms and those rights and those privileges for everybody worldwide regardless of the country they live in or the particular political ideology they may hold or the religion they may follow um is not western imperialism um it's simply fairness and for that reason um we sincerely hope that the cuban protests don't um descend into something more violent um, but we also sincerely hope that they do lead to some degree of liberalization uh, and to the Cuban government stepping back its repression and its economic control to allow people a higher standard of living and hopefully towards the US uh, repealing its embargo. So if you've found this week's podcast uh, informative and interesting or if you uh, vehemently disagree with us and think we're CIA agents, uh, then you can get in touch with us uh, at uh, our website theviolet.net you can find us on twitter with our handle at underscore theviolet underscore or you can email us at contact.theviolet at gmail.com thank you and we hope you listen in next time